for this morning's hour, as we continue in our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Romans, let me remind you that we are in a major section of the letter in which the Apostle Paul is showing the righteous judgment of God upon all human sin. That section of his epistle stretches all the way from chapter 1 of Romans in verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Thus far, we have covered the material from chapter 1, verse 18 of this section to chapter 2, verse 12, where we are this morning. And you remember from 118 to 32 that Paul indicts the Gentiles, or pagans, or even as one in my family, one of my children, asks me, is that the Greeks? Yes, the Greeks, the Gentiles, or even the Roman world, all referring essentially to the same group of people, namely all the non-Jews. Although, in Romans 1.18 itself, Paul can hardly be restricting his comments to only the pagan world, but he speaks there of the universality of sinfulness. Nevertheless, he zeroes in on the pagans and lets them know that God will judge them because of their total depravity. From verses 19 to 32, though, I think he does build his case that Gentiles deserve the divine fury of judgment against them because of their utter sinfulness. At least them, if not primarily them. But beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, however, Paul begins to turn his guns of indictment upon his own kinsmen, the Jews. He speaks, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, about God's righteous judgment upon the Jewish people. Because even though the Jews would certainly agree with God's righteous condemnation of the Gentile world, the Jews themselves deserve the wrath of God, Paul says, because they themselves practice the same wickedness as the Gentiles, and thus deserve condemnation also. God's judgment of them is totally righteous and true. That's what Paul says there. And furthermore, in Romans 2 verses 6 to 11, which we covered last time, not only is God's judgment righteous, but His judgment also is impartial. We learn that the Jews cannot claim that their race curries special favor with God as over against the pagan world. God does not grant preferential treatment to the Jews simply because they are Jewish. Paul says in Romans 2.6, if you remember, that he, God, will render to each one, note the universality here, each one according to his works. In other words, It is based upon what one does, not simply upon your race or the color of your skin or what part of the world you live in or any such thing, whether God blesses you or ultimately redeems you. Indeed, Paul says, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth of God, he will render to them wrath and fury. Likewise, to those whose lives manifest well-doing in their seeking of God, His glory and honor and peace is what they desire, then the full manifestation of eternal life, of glorification, awaits them. And Paul explicitly says it is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile that these things are available. It isn't something reserved for Jews only. It will come to them first, first because it was promised to them by covenant, but it will be given to all the nations as well 
because God does not show favoritism. And now, according to verse 12 through 16, and the title of this message, we come to God's lawful judgment. That's the way I want to title this morning's message. To coincide with the previous two. God's righteous judgment, verses 1 to 5. God's impartial judgment, verses 6 to 11. And now verses 12 to 16, God's lawful judgment. Paul wants to begin to tackle the issue of the law. And this would be a huge issue for the Jews. They would assume themselves, of course, to be a very blessed people. And of course they were. To have received on Mount Sinai the law of God delivered through Moses. It was God's written revelation to the people of Moses' day, His own people, the Jews, which was to guide them throughout their existence, this law. The Torah. It was to be a very sacred thing for the Jews. Why? For it contained God's direction for their lives. It told them what to do and how to live. And it is virtually agreed by Bible commentators that in this passage, when Paul speaks about the law, he's speaking about the Mosaic law. Although, of course, there is another kind of law, sort of law, spoken of here for the Gentiles that we'll talk about in a moment. But for Paul's point, when he first references it here, he's using his statements about the law, referring to the Mosaic law. And here he's talking about it in a negative context. And it's obvious why he's doing that. Because he's referring in this context to God's judgment upon men. And the reason he does this is because he anticipates an argument from the Jews who are the ones specifically in view here. And they might say something like this. We know that God is righteous. And we know that He's righteous in His judgment. We affirm that from verses 1 to 5. And Paul, we could agree with you that God is impartial. Therefore, we affirm verses 6 to 11. But, we're God's covenant people. We've received God's law, and the Gentiles do not. We're God's faithful people, and we are of the law. Therefore, they should be judged, but we should not. We are possessors of the very law of God. He gave His law only to us, the Jews, His covenant people, His own family with God Himself, as head. And as such, God would never condemn us along with the Gentiles, would He? And for that answer, let's read together verses 12 to 16. Paul says to them this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying here by this argument? What's he anticipating? What's his answer to these Jews? Well, he's responding or anticipating the Jews' argument about being privileged with God's law. This is really, in a sense, the first time this is coming up here in Romans about the law. And God says, yes, you've been privileged with the law, 
And he says here that God's impartiality in judging you, the Jews, is just. Why? Because everyone has been given a law. A law. Whether it has come to them in a formal or informal sense. John Stott has said it very well about this very context. He says, Paul's thrust has been that God has no favorites. That Jews and Gentiles will be judged by him without discrimination. And that both groups have some knowledge of his law. Consequently, no human being can plead complete ignorance. We have all sinned against a moral law we have known. Whether we have come to know it by special or general revelation. By grace or nature. Outwardly or inwardly. In the scripture or in the heart. Is largely irrelevant. The point is... That all human beings have known something of God, chapter 1, verse 20, and of goodness, chapter 1, verse 32, chapter 2, verse 15, but have suppressed the truth in order to indulge in wickedness. So we all come under the righteous judgment of God. End quote. You see, the issue isn't how you come to know Something about God. The issue is everybody knows something about God and everybody thus is sinning against that God and therefore they are judged by that God. But you see the Jews, they must have had an especially hard time swallowing that argument definitely about the Gentiles. And especially when they compared the Gentiles as over against themselves. Oh, no, 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 no. You cannot be comparing us with them, Lord. You even remember in Luke 18 when one of the Pharisees was comparing himself with that man who was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven because he was a penitent sinner, a non-Jew, And he said, I thank thee, I thank God that I'm not like this one. Same idea. They were God's chosen people who'd been given his moral law. Surely you're not going to tell us, your own people, your covenant people, that we are going to be judged along with these filthy, wretched, vile, unbelieving, pagan Gentile people, are you? But Paul says in verse 11, God shows no partiality. Everybody's condemned. Every single person. Man, woman, child, regardless of race. Every single person. That's what this whole section is about. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. It is a barrage, and he leaves no stone unturned. It cannot be that anyone anywhere can can claim privilege, even the Jews. Or should I say, especially the Jews. God shows no partiality. That's verse 11. And by the way, with no paragraph break per se... He says, for, in verse 12, right in our text, for, meaning he wants to give us further word on God's impartiality. For, and now he wants to explain something about God's impartiality. But he does so, interestingly enough, in the form of an illustration. And it's an illustration about the law. And it's really forming for us the outline of this passage which Paul uses as an illustration of the law. And it goes something like this. And I want to give you this morning the outline. It's three outline points. Paul gives us three key principles here regarding God's law and judgment. Here's the first one. In verses 12 to 13, Paul says this. All mankind is under judgment, even the Jews. 
That's outline point number one. All mankind is under judgment, even the Jews. The universality of sin, even the Jews, regardless of their privileged reception of the Mosaic law. Secondly, in verses 14 and 15, he uses the Gentiles as an illustration of those who even themselves have a kind of law like the Jews. And then he tells them they'll also be judged because they'll be judged by the law that they've been given. And then thirdly, in verse 16, he gives us a concluding principle And it is this, God will judge the secret motives of all men. That's the outline of this passage. Three key principles all before us. Let's look at the first one. All mankind is under judgment, even the Jews who have been given God's holy law. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, and who might that be, friends? Who might that be? Who is being referred to there? For all who have sinned without the law. Who is that? Gentiles. Greeks. Romans. Unbelievers. Non-Jews. It's all the same way of saying the same group of people. Non-Jews. All who have sinned without the law, Gentiles, pagans, unbelievers, will also perish without the law. The Mosaic law. And all who have sinned under the law, who's that? Jews. Will be judged by, or literally, through the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the whom? Doers of the law who will be justified. Now remember that this is a continuation of verses 6 to 11 with that connector word for. Which begins our verse 12, explaining that God is still hammering away through Paul at those Jews who thought they were exempt from God's judgment simply because they were Jews. And God shows no partiality. And therefore, even if the Jews were to claim that they have the law, he's trying to tell them you haven't yet dealt with the real issue. And what is the real issue? Sin. Sin. Human sin. You see, beloved, there is an axiomatic principle in the universe. An axiom. What is that? A self-evident truth. It's just true. It's a truth. And there is an axiomatic principle in the universe that no sinful people, including Jews, can claim special favor from God's ultimate judgment simply because they have laws detailing what to do and what not to do. That's his point. The point is, even privileged people like the Jews are not exempt from judgment simply because you've received a set of laws that say this is what you do and this is what you don't do. What's the point? The point is, you have to do something Regarding the laws you've been given, right? You can't just receive them and say, thank you very much. Appreciate that. I have the law now. You have to do something about it. The issue is, have you done them? And of course, because of what we're talking about, keeping the law, in what way must you keep the law? Perfectly. You have to keep them perfectly. And of course, that answer will always be no. And so what does that do? It nullifies you. You can never stand before God having said, I was given that law and I kept that law perfectly. Isn't that exactly what happened with that rich young ruler who came and said, I've I've kept it all. And Jesus said, go out and do this and that and such and such. Hitting him right where he needed to be hit. And what did he do? He walked away sorrowing. Why? Scripture says because he owned much. He wasn't willing to give up his riches. 
You see, the Jews can't claim exemption from judgment simply because they were given the Mosaic legislation by God at Sinai. They'll be judged on the basis of what they did with the law they were given. And isn't that just like the human heart? We don't want God to judge us by obeying the law we've been given, only that we were given it. God says at the judgment seat, Were you one of the ones to whom I gave my law? Yes, I was, Lord. Fine, then, the Lord says, you're in. No. No, it's not just that you were of Abrahamic heritage. And what's worse, maybe with the precise argument that he's making here, what's worse than this is that the Jews wanted God to zap the pagan world with judgment because of their not having received the law in the first place, and then the judgment on them because of their wicked practices as a result. Because the pagan world didn't have the law, and then they went out and did wicked practices, and the Jews come along and say, well, you don't have the law of God. And, in addition to that, you're doing wicked things. Therefore, you're wicked people, and God doesn't have anything to do with you. And He should judge you. For your wickedness. It's fairly ironic, isn't it? And that's why Paul calls them, the Jews, hypocrites in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Why? Because he says you condemn them, and yet you turn around and practice the very same things. You're hypocrites. And then he calls them in verses 6 to 11, unrighteous truth disobeyers, because this is what their mindset was. And then here in verse 12, he says, plainly as plainly can be said, all, all, verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Folks, that is everybody. There, there isn't anybody else. The Gentiles, they don't have the law. They are nevertheless going to be judged by the law they have. And it says there, verse 12, they will also what? Perish. Consigned to judgment. And those who have the law... They will also perish. They will be judged because they did not obey the law. It isn't that people will have the same exact criteria for judgment. That's obvious. You won't be judged for what you don't know about the law if you've never been given the law by God. But make no mistake about what Paul says here. All who have sinned without the law will also perish. Same judgment for both, at least in terms of the perishing. And this, by the way, beloved, I believe is the key to interpreting this passage, or at least one key. It is a passage within a context about the judgment of God. And Paul is saying to the Jews that all who have sinned, not merely Gentiles who haven't been given God's verbal revelation of Mosaic legislation, are under the condemnation of that same God, their God, which means the Jews themselves will not escape God's divine wrath even if they have been given God's law through Moses. And he tells them explicitly, all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jews, will be judged by the law. You know, Paul probably was not a very popular evangelist among the Jews. He's, he's not popular. No wonder they took him to the end of the city, whether it was a city that had Jew or Gentile dominance. Why? Because his message to both of them was, if he went into a Gentile area, according to the book of Acts, he didn't start with the law, right? He started with creation. And he told them about the God they didn't really know much about. And he told them about this God, the Creator God. Or if he went into the synagogue, which was his practice, and he would go into synagogue, the book of Acts says, three Sabbaths, and he would begin to reason with them, not according to God, the Creator God. They already knew that because they had the law. He would reason with them according to the Scriptures. And he would tell them about 
Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, whom they knew very much about. And he would say, Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures. Can't you see it? And both groups, equal opportunity persecutors, they were. We don't like your message. And so these Jews say here, how will we be judged by the law? And God will judge differently. Yes, it will be a different kind of judgment. It's clear. But under what criteria does he judge? Paul anticipates that too. Look at verse 13. I've already alluded to it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. See, the Jews can't stand on the judgment day and say, We heard your law, Lord. We heard it. Their commendation from God will come to them when God sees that they have what regarding the law? Heard it? Obeyed. Obeyed. The doing. Now, don't misunderstand. I understand, and so obviously does Paul, that no one can perfectly obey the law of God and thereby be justified by God, declared righteous. But that isn't Paul's point here. He will develop that. He is not in this context talking about how we respond necessarily by faith. He will come to that soon enough. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. He says, By works of the law, talking again by doing, doing the works of the law, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You say, now wait a minute. Here it says, the doers of the law will be justified. But here it says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. What's, what's the issue? Sounds like a contradiction. No, because he goes on to say, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what he's saying here, in a context of judgment, is one point, and in chapter 3 is another point. What is his point in chapter 3? Well, he goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here's his point. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he's not talking here in chapter 2, verses 12 and following, about faith necessarily. He's going to talk about that later on. Faith in Jesus Christ, who is the righteous fulfillment of the law. Sinners need a justifying righteousness, and no one ever had that by simply hearing about God's law. Christ did that, and we put our faith in Him. That's where we receive our justifying righteousness, not our own, but His. His point here, however, in Romans 2, is that you cannot stand before God in the judgment and say, I ought to be safe as a Jew because I heard the law. I had it in my possession. It was in my hands. I'm a Jewish person. I'm in. Nope. Hearing, grasping, receiving, it's not enough. You can't just be a hearer. It's not by your race. And I don't want to trivialize this point in any way, but in thinking about this, I thought of an illustration. What if you were driving your car around in your home area of Little Rock and your, your tags, your license, your registration were all up to date, everything seemed in order? You assumed that you were minding your own business and all of a sudden you were pulled over by a policeman of our city and after he observed you for several miles making a number of illegal moving violations in your car and after a protracted discussion in which the officer detailed each of the violations, both you and he then noticed other motorists with out-of-state license plates also violating similar traffic laws. And you said, Hey, You ought to leave me alone and go after those guys. Besides, 
They're from out of state, and I'm local. And the officer says, I pulled you over because the particular laws you've broken are ones which you should have obeyed because you're a resident of this state, and they are not. Don't you worry about them. They'll also be dealt with in time and in a way that matches their crime. But you ought to know better since you live here and you took our state tests and you violated our laws of driving. But you respond, but you don't seem to understand. I have my car registration up to date. My driver's license is in order. My insurance is impeccable. You shouldn't be writing me that ticket and sending me to the judge. I heard everything the instructor taught on the day of the driver's test, and I even passed the test with a perfect score. But he says, but you aren't obeying the laws that your driver's license commits you to uphold. When you were given the laws of the state regarding driving a motor vehicle, were you told to hear them or hear and obey them? the same idea. Now, maybe not all of that is perfectly reflecting the scriptural data, but I think you get the overall picture. While the officer is asserting that you didn't obey the laws, you were arguing that your reception of the laws was enough. Or maybe that your paperwork was in order. Or that he should go after someone else who's from out of state. Go after some Gentile. Do anything but send me, the favored one, to the judge. You see, we are so biased toward ourselves that we want the judge, God himself, to deal with anyone except ourselves when we don't obey his expressed will. Deal with anybody except me, of course. And the Jews really had a problem with the Gentiles and really had a problem with them about the law. But Paul counters that and tells them, you know what? First of all, you are wrong on that account because you're going to be judged and you'll be judged by your law. But secondly, Paul says, do you realize that the Gentiles, they have a law? Look at verses 14 and 15. We might say it like this. The Gentiles have a God-wrought law consciousness written in their hearts. They have a a God-wrought law consciousness, and it's actually written on their hearts. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles, he says, who do not have the law, the Mosaic law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, the Mosaic law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And here's Paul's illustration. Here's his illustration of the Gentiles. He wants to give the Jews who are arguing that they should be excluded from judgment because they have the law of God, or or at least that the Gentiles rather should be judged because they don't have the law. Here's his illustration. He says that indeed they do have a law. Don't tell them or don't tell me or don't try to tell God that they don't have law. They do have law. What kind of law? Well, he says it's true they don't have the Mosaic law. They don't have that kind of law. But they do have a divine sense of right and wrong. They do have that. And even sometimes, he says, they do what the law requires. And we see this, don't we? We see this in our world. We see pagan people who have what appears to be a biblical morality or a biblical teaching doing what we would say naturally or instinctively the things that the Bible speaks of, at least in limited cases. They're obeying, at least in part. You say... How did they come up with that? The answer is from God. From God. It's a God-wrought consciousness that there is a right thing to do and that there is a wrong thing to do. And sometimes unbelievers stumble into the right things to do because of this innate law written in their hearts. 
Now you say, how far does that go? Not real far. Why? Because of the noetic effects of sin. You say, what, what is that? Well, the Greek word nous is from the word that we receive, the English word mind. Noetic effects. Because of the sinfulness of the mind. And no sooner do they do what is right and stumble across doing what is right than they then stumble into doing what is wrong. But they do what is right sometimes and in their stumbling and bumbling way and at times half-heartedly and somewhat shaky. But nevertheless, they have a sense of right and wrong and they sometimes actually do what is right. And sometimes they do it for quite a while. Even non-Christians, you'll even hear it. You might have even been raised in a family where we often will say such things as, I was raised in a very moral home. My parents weren't Christians, right? But they were very moral. They were upstanding. They chose not to do things that you would see other families doing, but they weren't Christians. Things like that. This is a verse that supports that idea. You say, well, it's just external. Well, Paul goes on. He says it's not just external. It's in their conscience. Do you see it there? They, they show that the, the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Sinaiticus, their conscience in every single human heart, there's a testament, a testimony to the existence of the person of God. That's what Paul says. And that's why when you hear theologians talk about apologetics, the defense of the faith, this is the classic text, Romans 2, 14 and 15, like Romans 1, 18 and 19 and following, that says that the existence of God can be proven in two ways. What are those two ways? Creation and conscience. At least those two ways, creation and conscience. Maybe they could be divided up in Maybe some subcategories, but at least generally speaking, those two ways. Creation and conscience. God has revealed himself, himself in creation. That's what Romans 1 says. For his invisible attributes, 120, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And we also see that this pagan world, they show that the work of the law, the innate sense of right and wrong, is written on their hearts. And their conscience also bears witness of this. So, there's a sort of a natural, instinctive sense of God-wrought consciousness of right and wrong. So even those who don't have an external law, God giving a verbal revelation... On Mount Sinai, to a chosen people, the Jews, they nevertheless have something given to them. Where is it given to them? Instinctively, inside, internally, in their heart or on their heart, more precisely. Which means what? What's his point here? What's the context? Judgment. Which means what? They're not exempt either. They're not exempt either. Because maybe someone's going to come along and say, hey, wait a minute. If they haven't been given the law, if they don't have this mosaic legislation, hey, maybe Paul's point is the Jews are the ones who are really going to get it. In fact, he says, backing up to verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first. Hey, maybe they're going to get it. But Paul says, no, and also for the Greek. No, no. Nobody can claim, I didn't have enough knowledge. I didn't have enough information. Because God will say to them on that day, you had enough because I gave it to you in creation. And where? Conscience. Conscience. It's bearing witness. Bearing witness. And look what else verse 15 says. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And at first glance, you might assume that this is speaking again of a good thing. A good thing. But remember, it's in the context of judgment. You see verse 16, God judges. God judges. And while it's true, Paul says, that the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, they have a law written in their hearts, which allow them to obey the law, their 
thoughts, sometimes their conscience, sometimes excuse them. He says that there, sometimes, but the majority of times, and in fact, that's even the exegesis of the verse, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse, even excuse. That means it's concessive. That means it's less dominant. It means that accuse is the dominant part of the phrase. So what does that mean? Experientially, what is the predominant part of their life? What's their conscience doing? It's accusing them. It's accusing them. And what are they doing about that? What does Romans 1 say? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's what they're doing. And God will judge them. God will judge them. And it's true to say then that regardless of the fact that both Jew and Gentile have laws, one given directly, the other indirectly, regardless of the fact that they both have consciences, one from known laws, one from nature, regardless of the fact that they both hear these laws in whatever form they may come, all who have sinned, this is Paul's point, all who have sinned will what? Perish. That's his point. And he really concludes with that and our outline point. And finally, number three, God will one day render final judgment by examining the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All men, all men, regardless of race, Jew or Gentile, will stand before God on that terrible day according to Paul's gospel of faith in the glorious good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where he will judge those who have sinned. With or without having received the law, not with the mere hearing of this righteous and holy and good set of commandments of God, with or without their consciences accusing or even at times excusing them, it will be a judgment, Paul says, of the secrets of men. You know how I've often thought of this? And I've thought of this all the years of my Christian life. I used to think of it in terms of a film. I now think of it in terms of videotape. Or maybe should I say DVD. That one day, unless you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all of the secret motives of your heart will be revealed on DVD. Ready for that? You ready for that? That's what the Word of God says. On that day. That is the eschatological day. That is the final day. That is the day of judgment. According to my gospel, Paul says, the gospel which I preach on that day, God judges the secrets of men. And you don't want your life exposed unless your life is hidden with Christ in God. You don't want that. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. And what will the Lord do when He comes? Here's what He'll do. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You better hope you receive a commendation from God, not a condemnation. You say, well, how does that come? How does that come? You say, well, it will only come if you confess your motives 
right now. Right now. Proverbs 28, 13. He who hides his sin shall not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Here's the way to say it in our language of today. The things we uncover, God will cover. But the things that we cover, God will uncover. You want God to uncover your sin? He will. On that terrible, terrible day of judgment. You cover, you hide your sin. He will uncover that before the cosmos. And He will judge you severely. And if you're not standing robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ... Your sins will be paraded and you will be judged. You say, I don't want that. I want my sins uncovered. But I'm embarrassed by them. I'm shamed by them. Join the club. So is everyone else. But if you uncover them by confessing and forsaking them, God does what? He covers. He covers. He covers them with the perfect fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He covers them. You say, doesn't seem fair. Guess what? It isn't. It isn't fair. My sinful life for which I want my sins to be initially covered so that they will be ultimately covered for the righteousness of Jesus Christ who didn't deserve to die but who who was willing to be beaten and ultimately killed to stand in my place so that ultimately His life would be covered for mine? That doesn't seem fair. It is not. Decidedly, it is not. But it is offered. It is offered. And for those who take it, guess what? You don't mind confessing one little bit. You say to God, I confess joyfully, immediately, that I am a sinner. And I stand in need of Jesus Christ now. Now. Let's bow together in prayer. If you would but believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sin. Asking God to cover because you have uncovered, He will do it. He's promised in His Word that He will cover you with the righteousness of Christ. We read about it, didn't we? For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you believe? If you do, then the righteousness of God through faith in Christ can be yours. Believe in Him now. Trust in Him. Cling to Him. And He will cover your sins. Cry out to Him.
Say to him, Lord, please cover what I have just now uncovered. My wickedness. My vile wretchedness. I agree with you. I confess. I say the same thing that you say. All who have sinned will also perish. I will perish without you, Lord. Save me. Save me from perishing. Deliver me from my sin. Redeem me from the pit. Lord, don't don't allow me to be deluded into thinking that I can continue to cover my sin. To hide it. Because if I do, on that terrible, terrible day, you will uncover it before all. And I will be forever judged. The motives of my very heart. Oh God, I pray that in your sovereign will and the grand scheme for which you only are sovereign, you redeem those whom you have elected from eternity past. Save them now, Lord, for your glory. For those who would say, I know I have already been redeemed. Then shout hallelujah in your soul. That God's judgment is true. It is righteous altogether. There is no partiality with Him. And that He has robed you in the righteousness of His Son. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.